Stanford University. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, uh, I can't help but notice that there actually are a lot of people from Cleveland who tend to study education uh, uh, and to study the achievement gap. Uh, thank you for joining me at the outset uh, of my inquiry into what I think is one of the most significant achievement gaps that confronts our nation. Now, my interest in this topic, of course, is intellectual and academic, but it's also personal as a father of three young boys. Usually, when we talk about the achievement gap, we talk about uh, differences between racial groups. And these differences are large. Uh, I won't spend much time on them because they're probably familiar to everyone in this room. Um, I should note, though, this is my first time using PowerPoint. Uh, I, I don't use it much because my son usually makes my slides. It's my second time using PowerPoint. He makes my slides, and every time I ask him, he says he has a science test the next day. So, uh, so this was made without his help. Um, so if there are any problems, it's because he wasn't there to provide his assistance. Uh, but so here we have some information um, from the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Uh, this is a familiar story. Um, grade four mathematics scores. The higher bar is for whites, the lower bar is for African Americans. You see this pattern replicated at practically every achievement measure you look at. Uh, if we put Asian Americans on the screen, their bar would be a little bit higher than for whites. Uh, the Latino bar would be comparable to the black bar, but typically the black bar is going to be the lowest at every grade level. Uh, it's age four. Uh, this is math scores. I'm sorry, grade four. Grade four, this is math scores. Grade eight, math scores. Uh, substantial gaps. Grade 12, math scores. Substantial gaps again. Uh, we see the same pattern if we look at reading scores. Uh, uh, reading scores, uh, fourth grade, whites, African Americans. Substantial gaps there, grade eight. Gap remains, grade 12, gap remains. Right? So we see the gap at every level uh, and at practically whatever measure you use. Uh, what's most disconcerting to me, or what's most striking, really, is that this gap is not simply a function of parents' education level. Uh, when we look at achievement uh, within groups, we see generally that the more educated the parents, the higher the achievement of the children. Uh, and you see this for blacks generally and for whites, uh, whatever your measure of achievement. Uh, but we also see that even when you look at the children of well-educated African-American parents, they typically do not fare as well even, or fare no better than the children of less educated white parents. Right, so here, uh, we don't have all the labels. This is basically increasing parents' education. Uh, so, uh, high school, uh, we did not finish high school, graduated high school, some college, and then college graduate. All right, so from high school dropout at one end to college graduate as the other. Uh, if you look there, you notice that even the black kids whose parents have graduated from high school fare worse than the white kids whose parents did not complete, uh, who, whose parents only graduate. If, if you, I'm sorry, if you look at the black kids whose parents graduated from college, they actually fare worse than white children whose parents only graduated from high school, right? So the bar on the end for black kids whose parents graduated from college, white kids whose parents only graduated from high school. So black children of college graduated parents read no better than, or read worse on average than white children whose parents only graduated from high school. Right. Another way to put it, just to bring the point home, is that 
the average 17 year old black student reads no better than the average 13 or 14 year old white student. Right? That's the magnitude of the gap. And this is a uh, substantial gap. Uh, it's a long standing gap as well. Uh, this gap is, is, you know, monumentally important, right? And this is all, again, I, I hope that I'm preaching to the choir here. Uh, you know, this gap is monumentally important because education is associated with the whole variety of, of good outcomes for individuals, right? Greater education leads to greater personal well-being, stability along a number of dimensions. Uh, we've heard a lot, just give me just you, give you a few examples of the significance of education. Uh, we've heard a lot about education and or we've heard a lot about incarceration. Uh, in, in environments like Stanford, we hear a lot about, and in the law school in particular, we hear a lot about the incarceration rate of black men in particular. Uh, you all probably know that our nation incarcerates more people now than we ever have in our history. Uh, we incarcerate more people per capita than any nation uh, that we would regard as a democratic nation or even as a, you know, modern nation. Uh, only apartheid South Africa and the Soviet Union uh, exceeded uh, United States incarceration rates in modern times. Uh, we incarcerate uh, seven or more times as many people as countries in Western Europe. Uh, African American men are six, seven, eight times more likely than white men to be incarcerated. Uh, so huge racial disparities there. We also, though, what we don't hear about as much is that incarceration also involves a class disparity. Right? African-American men who graduate from college, unsurprisingly, are much less likely to be incarcerated than African-American men who drop out of high school. African-American men who drop out of high school, statistics indicate, are more likely than not to spend significant time in jail. Literally 60, 70% of black high school dropouts, men will go to jail. Among college graduates, the figure drops to 10% or so. Right, so we have a racial disparity in incarceration along educational lines that is comparable to the racial disparity that we have, to, to, the, to the, I'm sorry, we have a, a disparity in incarceration along educational lines that is comparable to the incarceration uh, disparity that we see along racial lines, right? So poorly educated black men are as much more likely to go to prison than well-educated black men as black men are generally to white men, right? So that's the one estimate of the significance of education. Uh, we also see uh, evidence about the significance of, of education when we look at family life. Uh, in my recent, my forthcoming book, I focused a lot on marriage uh, and the link between education and marriage. Uh, again, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, education is very much linked to marital likelihood and marital stability. Uh, this wasn't always true, but it is now. During the last 30, 40, 50 years, we've seen an extraordinary divergence in the marital and family fortunes of the worse versus the better educated. Right. In 1960, poor women, poor men were about as likely to be married as affluent, well-educated men and women. Now that's no longer the case. Right. Poor women 
many of them will never marry. Educated women are more likely to marry now, in fact, than they were generations ago. And once a couple does marry, whether they stay together depends very much on their educational level as well. Poor couples who are, I think, you know, high school dropouts, poor couples are in fact more likely than not to split. Again, 60-70% of marriages among uh, the sort of most poorly educated couples will end in divorce. 60 or 70%. Some estimates are as high as 80%. Among better educated spouses, uh, divorce rates are substantially less. It's difficult to estimate divorce rates, but the best estimates are that, is, are that, are that as few as 20% of well-educated couples will divorce. Right, so when you hear about divorce rates being 50% or 45% or 55%, that aggregate statistic masks a substantial socioeconomic disparity. And that socioeconomic, and that disparity in uh, marital stability has everything to do with education. That's reason two that education matters. Reason three that education matters has to do with earnings. Uh, again, as we might suspect, college educated people earn more than people who have less education. The, uh, what may not be as widely known is that during the past 30 or 40 years, we've seen an earning divergence between those with the college education or professional education and those with the high school education or with less than a high school education, right? So it's always been the case that college educated people earn more than those with the high school education. But it has not always been the case that college-educated people, as they do now, earn twice as much as people with only a high school education. Twice as much. The, pre the economic premium for education is greater now than it's been at any time, certainly in the past half century. Right. So this means that the cost of not going to college is actually greater now than it has been before, right? And I'm still hoping you're all the choir here, right? I mean, this is, this is our starting point, right? Uh, the cost of not going to college is greater. And that's the cost that's not only borne by individuals, it's actually borne by our nation, right? As Professor Darlene Hammond has highlighted, uh, the uh, achievement gap um, is quite simply a drag on our economic productivity, right? Our nation does less well when African-American and Latino children do less well. GDP is lower than it otherwise would be. We're less competitive than we otherwise would be. Right, so that's the sort of backdrop for this project, uh, is that we have an achievement gap. Achievement gap is substantial. Uh, it burdens individuals and also burdens our nation. Right, it keeps us back. But in this project, as the uh, title here says, uh, I'm not focused on the black-white gap in this project. Um, I'm actually focused on the different gap, or a part of the achievement gap. And this is a part that I find more puzzling, frankly. Uh, the achievement gap is significant, it's consequential, it's substantial. But the racial gap is also understandable. Right? The racial gap is understandable, right, because there are all sorts of ways in which black children and Latinos as well lack educational resources to a greater extent 
than do members of other groups. Right, and we can think of the resources in terms of economic resources. We can think of them, think of non-economic resources. Uh, we can think of parents' income, the parents' wealth. Uh, we can think of the parents' education. We can think of the likelihood that the parents are together or apart. Uh, we can think about the schools that children go to and whether they're segregated, whether they have quality teachers, whether they don't. I mean, there are lots of things that contribute to the racial gap. So while we might debate, and, and we should research, the precise factors that contribute to the racial gap and the interplay of those factors, we should all be able to agree that black children in general lack access to a whole array of resources that contribute to good educational outcomes. Right? So it's a hard political problem, but intellectually we can see what some of the problems are. Right? We can see what those problems are. When we look at the gender gap, though, it's not as obvious what the problems are. Right? It's not as obvious why we would have a gender gap. The simple fact here, uh, and I think of this in a very immediate, personal sense, is that in black families throughout the nation, black boys fare worse than their sisters. That's just the fact. We can just sort of think about that. You can think of people you know. Black boys fare worse than their sisters. When the sisters end up at Stanford or Harvard or Columbia or MIT, the boys often do not enter a college classroom. That's not an uncommon scenario. African Americans are middle class African Americans are less likely than any other group to replicate their class status through their children. All right, it's also it's probably not surprising to some, not to others. Uh, middle class black children are much less likely to grow up and maintain that status than middle class white children. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that black boys fall back. They fall behind, they fail, they falter, even when their sisters succeed. So uh, let's look at a little evidence of this. See how my PowerPoint is working here. Uh, OK, so here we have um, uh, just a bit of evidence of the gender gap. Uh, black women outnumber black men in college by a wide margin. Uh, according to recent business from 2008, I believe, uh, there were 1,400,000 black women in college, uh, less than 900,000 black men in college. Uh, pretty big gap there, uh, but the gap actually widens if you look at college graduation. And this is the aspect of the gender gap that I, I, that I, um, that I do think about at night. Uh, every year, for every black man who graduates from college, two black women do so. Every single year, two black women graduate from college for every one black man. And these are not, again, so now this is not a problem among the poor. This is not a problem among inner cities. There are problems there. This is also a problem that encompasses the middle class, right? This is a problem that encompasses a group of African-Americans who we would expect to make it, right? Because ostensibly they have resources. Their parents have resources. Their parents are educated. So it's two to one every year, uh, girls to boys. Uh, when we look at graduate school, we see 
Uh, again, this is in PhD programs. Uh, recent, I think 2008, 125,000 black women in graduate school, uh, 58,000 black men. So now it's more than two to one. So not only women graduate college two to one, they go to graduate school, it's more than two to one. More than two to one in graduate school. And, and this is just to make a, a lot of women, uh, I mean, certainly education has been po a popular graduate destination for women. Uh, and women, of course, out, black women are, are better represented in the field of education than black men. Uh, but even when you look at so-called non-traditional fields for women, black women outnumber black men. Uh, computer science, for example. As we are here, there are more black women computer science. Last year, there were more black women computer science graduates than there were black men. That's a field historically has been dominated by men. You know, we think that women are not going to make it in science or there's are barriers to women in science. Uh, we expect men to predominate, but black women outnumber black men even in traditional, traditionally male fields like computer science. That's the big gap. Uh, and even if we look at, for example, this is, these are national statistics. If we look at black colleges, uh, which are reputed to do a good job with black men, right, and they in fact do have uh, higher graduation rates than many predominantly white schools relative to the entering characteristics of the students, black women are, are clobbering the men there, right? They're, they're not on par. At every school that I know of, the black women do better than the black men. Uh, I even, uh, in law school uh, as well, black women, uh, so do much better than black men. Uh, this is a number of, and this again, uh, this is a recent year, uh, we've had nearly 1,900 black women who earned law degrees, and every year these numbers are about the same. So we have 1,900 or so women who earn a law degree every year. Among black men, uh, the number just gets a little above 1,000, about 1,100. So black women, earn three law degrees for every two earned by black men. And this is every year. Right? And at some of the most elite schools, we don't see evidence of this gender gap, right? Because at a school like Stanford or schools like Harvard and Yale, we pretty much choose our classes, right? But if you look at a national, on the national level, the gender gap is substantial. So that's one bit of information. Uh, we look at medical school, we see the same, <coughs> same pattern, right? Black women are earning uh, nearly twice as many medical degrees as black men. And this is for research, I think, again, this is 2008, but this is every single year. Black women earn more medical degrees than black men, right? The result here, oh, I'll wait on that, okay, the result here, <laughs> So I don't want to spill the beans too fast. Okay, so the, the, the result here is that black women are uh, doing very well economically. I mean, this is a good thing, right? Black women have made strides over the past uh, many decades. Uh, they are earning uh, more than, they've ever, than they ever have. They're achieving uh, great success in many domains. But their success also highlights the fact that black men have not kept pace. And the failure of black men to keep pace, pace is reflected in the economic fortunes of men and women. Uh, we often hear uh, about the uh, earnings gap between men and women. 
Uh, and, there, and, and the general story there is that, you know, although women have made progress, men still earn more than women. Uh, and this is true with African Americans as well. And if you look at full-time workers and look at Bureau of Labor Statistics data, uh, the data show that black women earn less than black men. Right? But there are two facts that, that bear emphasis there. One is that the earnings gap is smaller for African Americans than for any other group. Black women earn 95% on average of what black men earn. 95%. The more significant fact is that there are actually more black women working <laughs> than there are black men. Right, those data about earnings don't take into account what percentage or what proportion of a group is actually employed full-time versus unemployed or working part-time or, or somehow not in the labor force, right? If we look at recent cohorts of African-Americans, it is unquestionably the case that women are doing better economically than men. Women are doing substantially better economically than men. This is among African Americans. And the reason for that has everything to do with education. Everything to do with education because the degrees that the women are receiving now are more valuable economically than they've been at any time in our lifetimes. So, uh, so that's the problem is to figure this out. Um, that's what the project of the book is. And I'm in an early stage in this book. As I said, I literally just finish this other book on marriage. Uh, in fact, I, this afternoon I have to email the publisher and say, you know, there's one word I need to change that I realize is not correct there. I'm hoping they won't give me a problem about this. But uh, uh, so this is early on in this project. Uh, but I want to, I would like to involve all of you in it. Uh, I'll be taking the same approach uh, with black boys as I took with the issue of marriage. Uh, in a book that focused mostly on black women. This is the cover, Is Marriage for White People? Uh, so what I'd like to do from here on out for a few minutes is to talk about this project to give you a sense of the approach that I'm taking with the uh, Black Boys Project. Because what makes the marriage book distinctive is really the same, there's the same things that make, the same features that make the Black Boys Project distinctive, I think. So first of all, uh, there's, of course, a substantive overlap uh, between these two projects. Right, so the marriage book, this is, is marriage for white people. And the first meaning there should be, is marriage for white people and not for black people? Right, that's the first thing. Is marriage for white people and not for black people? And I take the title from a, a, a story that a journalist wrote about going to visit a black uh, a, a classroom of black sixth graders in Washington, D.C., and she talks about the importance of family, and uh, one of the kids says, yeah, you know, I think family's really important. Can you teach us about parenting, and we want to learn about how to be good fathers? And she says, sure, I'll bring in some married couples to talk to you about parenting. And the kid says, no, I don't want any married couples. I just want to know about parenting. And she says, well, what do you mean? And he says, marriage? And then his friend pipes in and says, marriage is for white people. And the author is struck by this, uh, and struck by what she takes to be the truth of the statement, in fact, that African-Americans are the least likely to marry. And this is, a, this is the case. African-Americans are the least likely of any group to marry, uh, most likely to divorce. Uh, this is true for black women, it's true for black men, it's true for the poor, it's true for the affluent. However you slice and dice the data, black women are the most, un black people are the most unmarried 
group of people in this nation. In fact, we're more unmarried now, or more unpartnered now, than we've been at any time since the end of slavery. That sounds extreme, but that's actually the reality of the situation. Uh, so in this book, uh, what I realized early on was that a central fact in the marriage decline was the fact that black men have fared so poorly over the last 40 or 50 years. Because marriage has only declined among African Americans over that period. Right, in 1950, black men and black women were more or less as likely to be married as any other group of people. But then through the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, marriage declined precipitously among African Americans. And a central fact there is that black men fared more and more poorly. They fared worse with each succeeding decade, almost. And uh, that's part of the story of the marriage decline. So in the marriage book, I pretty much trace the consequences of that fact. Right? Black women have done well, many of them. Black men increasingly are failing. That has consequences for the family. So this book is about tracing the consequences of that gender gap. In the black boys book, I want to look directly at the gender gap and to try to figure out where that gender gap comes from. Right? Where does that gender gap come from? And, and it's puzzling again because the way I think about it is that people in the same family are systematically reaching different destinations. They're systematically going in different directions based on whether they're male or female. And we will see this among people we know in our own families. Uh, it's, just, it's not a secret. And it's not limited to the poor. So, uh, and I'll, I'll leave this up for a while because I just like looking at this cover. Um, so, there are three um, approaches that I want to take, and this is really the uh, sort of heart of my thinking right now, is just how to approach this issue. Um, so, one thing that I did in, this, in the marriage book, which worked really well, was that I embraced both the, what I think of as a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. Right, so the top-down approach was that when I first uh, began thinking about marriage, and this was, was uh, uh, more than a decade ago, uh, I, of course, you know, taught classes, and I was immersed in the social science evidence, and I read what law professors had to say, and policymakers, and sort of looked at all the documentary evidence, all the social science data, uh, social science theory. And I was almost, you know, had convinced myself to write the book uh, through looking only at this social science theory and evidence. Uh, but then someone said, oh, you know, maybe you should interview someone. And if you interview someone, maybe you can, it'll be more readable. Uh, as one early reader told me, she said, oh, I read your, your chapter and it was really interesting, but my head was swimming in statistics. <laughs> I said, wow, swimming in statistics, right? And she made it sound as though she had to take a pill afterward, right? Because it was so, it was too data heavy. So I thought, well, Maybe I'll go and interview some people, I'll get some good stories, right? And I'll, I'll spice things up. And I have a sister who's a journalist, and she encouraged me to do this. She thought it was a good idea. Uh, so I began to go out and interview people. This is the bottom up. Yeah, you know, I'd go out and interview people. 
But what I found actually exceeded my wildest expectations, right? By talking to people about their own stories, about their families, about their lives, they not only helped to illuminate themes that I already had in mind, they actually shaped the entire project. You see, there were facets of people's lives that were, were extraordinarily important, uh, not only individually to those people, but are also extraordinarily important socially that I simply would not have been able to identify from statistics and social science theory alone. One, one example of that, what's an example? One example of that is that as I um, talk to black women, uh, and these are middle class, college educated black women, uh, one of the issues that became apparent was that many women had married men who are less educated than they are, or married men who earn substantially less than they do because they're less educated. And I think of these as cross-class marriages. There is not a lot of research on cross-class marriages. Yet the more women that I spoke to, the more convinced I became that these cross-class marriages are really a central phenomenon in the lives of African-Americans, the men and the women. And then I went back and I looked at the data and actually I scratched my head, I'm like, how could I have missed this? National data show that more than half of college-educated black women who are married are married to a man who didn't graduate from college. Right? So half of college-educated black women are married to, who are married are married to a man who did not graduate from college. That's extraordinary. It was right there in the, on the tables. It was there. But I didn't see it because I didn't have a sense of what that might mean in people's lives. Right? And it actually is extraordinarily important in people's lives. So, in that way, the uh, uh, sort of the bottom-up approach shaped the entire project, right? It gave me new themes, new areas to look at, new ways in which I could analyze existing empirical evidence. Uh, so I want to bring the same approach to this book, right? And so now the, the, the point that I'm at with the boys' book is that I'm just reviewing the literature, Reviewing the literature, looking at the statistics, uh, trying to figure uh, with some precision exactly when the gender gap developed uh, historically, when does it develop age-wise, uh, how it plays out across different uh, socioeconomic categories, uh, across different regions of the country. Try to parse it in all the ways that I can. And then after that, we go out and we talk to people. That means me and my research assistants got to talk to people. Uh, the, uh, and we talked to students, teachers, administrators, uh, parents, to try to get a sense of their experience and then repeatedly take their uh, insights back to the data and try to fit the two together. So that's my approach. That's uh, my first sort of prong of my approach. So top down and bottom up. Second prong of this approach uh, is also one that I used with the marriage book, and that is to focus uh, particularly on African Americans. So the marriage book is about the marital situations, the predicaments of African Americans, and the Why Black Boys Fail book is about black boys and why black boys lag so far behind. So I want to tell that a story about that particular group 
But I also want to tell a story that's more universal. So with marriage, I tell a story about the decline in marriage among African Americans, but there's also a story about the decline in marriage in American society. That's the second meaning of is marriage for white people, right? Second meaning of is marriage for white people is is marriage even for white people, right? Because there are more white women or more women in society generally who are unmarried now uh, than ever in history. Another statement that seems extreme, but it's actually true. There are more 30-year-old women who are unmarried, a greater percentage of 30-year-old women are unmarried now than ever in our history. All right, so there's a story about the decline of marriage among African Americans, but then there's also a story about the decline of marriage th throughout society. And what happened with marriage, what still happens with marriage, uh, with the marriage debate, is that we have two dialogues that are going on about marriage and family, uh, and they're rarely connected. Right? One dialogue is, and you hear this on NPR all the time, right? one dialogue is about m the changing patterns of marriage. Right? Women, people are unmarried, are they delaying marriage, are they going to not get married, do people still need to marry, why do they marry? We have all sorts of stories about how marriage is changing in American society. Most of those stories uh, do not focus, actually almost none of them focus on African Americans. Right? Even when uh, the sociologists who I like and respect the most write about marriage, they don't mention African Americans until page 182 of their 325 page book. And even then it's only to say, well I know I have to say something about black people so I'll say it here, right? <laughs> but it's clear that black people are not the focus of the story, right? They're kind of, it's a footnote. It's peripheral because they want to tell a universal story. And that's understandable, they want to tell a universal story. At the same time, we have lots of focus on marriage. We've had for years people talking about marriage among the black poor in particular. Right, and this was made popular by William Julius Wilson, and now people like Catherine Eden have written about the sociologists, and there's a whole big literature there. Right, more books than I can count on my fingers. Uh, but those books, for the most part, are limited, either to the poor or to African Americans, and they don't have a story about marriage in American society. Right, for the most part. They don't have a story about marriage in American society. So we have these two discourses, a universal discourse about American society and a very particular discourse about black people, and the two are not connected. We have the same sort of segregated discourses when we talk about uh, boys. We have, uh, we have shelves of books about boys. And uh, the starting point for these books about boys, generally, is that boys are not doing as well as they used to. They're not doing as well as girls. And this is true. There are more, as we speak, there are more women in college than there are men. This is among all groups, right? Just society-wide. More women in college than men. At the most elite institutions, you don't, we don't feel that as much because we select our own classes. But once you step outside of those institutions who can select their own classes, you see substantial gender disparities with many institutions being 60, 65, 70% women. Lots of talk about the need for affirmative action to enroll enough boys, right? So women are doing better than men educationally. We see that at the college level. We also see it at the graduate school level uh, where women are at parity um, in law and in medicine. 
uh, not yet in business. Uh, business schools are still predominantly male, but women are doing better than men, uh, or as well or better than men in both law and medicine, uh, and in graduate school as well. So we have this society-wide concern about boys and about boys not faring well. Right? We see it at the college level. If we look earlier, we see disproportionate numbers of boys who are in special education classes, who are thought to have learning issues, who are suspended, who are expelled, who have behavioral problems. However you slice it, right? girls are doing better than boys now educationally. Right? There's long been a, a gap in reading scores between girls and boys, with girls scoring higher on the, on the NAEP than boys. But now we also see that girls are at parity in terms of math performance. Right? Parity or better. So we have this national conversation about boys and girls, but then we have a separate conversation about black boys. Right? And this is brought home most vividly to me in, in two books. One is titled, The Trouble with Boys. This is by a journalist, I think, Whitmore, The Trouble with Boys. And there's another book titled The Trouble with Black Boys. Now, do we think those people actually have talked to each other? <laughs> they have, right? The Trouble with Black Boys is, 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 is uh, the, the, the Trouble with Boys is by a journalist who did a lot of research, had a fellowship, did a lot of research. Trouble with Black Boys is by an academic, Pedro, Pedro Nagur, who's at the uh, NYU uh, School of Education now. Uh, so we have these two stories, two books with the same title, practically. But they're actually not communicating. There's separate dialogues there, right? The um, story, uh, The Trouble with Boys book, right, focuses on the different learning styles of boys. Right? The dominant story there is that uh, boys are hardwired differently than girls are. Right? And in some of these books in this genre, they even have page after page of graphs showing that the amygdala develops differently in boys and girls. And their cerebral cortex it has a different size at age 10 in girls as opposed to boys. And they link these to learning outcomes. Right? So the idea there is that boys develop differently than girls, uh, and that is hardwired. And that, that explains the fact that boys are not doing as well. And so we need to take account of these uh, biological differences. The literature on black boys uh, doesn't tend to focus so much on biological differences. Uh, it tends to focus more on uh, discrimination against boys uh, uh, as a result of the cultural imagery uh, of black boys. Uh, it focuses a lot on the images of masculinity uh, that the boys have embraced, on the boy's identity. Uh, some of the literature focuses on the lack of fathers uh, that black uh, in, in um, African-American families, uh, which uh, is assumed to disproportionately impact boys rather than girls. Uh, so we have these two literatures, different sources of emphases, but there's not a lot of connection between them uh, in, in, in a way that is, is, is puzzling and dismaying to me. So. What I want to do is to bring those two literatures together, right? And that's why when we go back to the title here, this is, uh, we have the parenthetical, right? So this is really why do boys fail? And the approach there is to understand why boys fail through the prism of the experience of black boys, right? So African-American young men 
provide a means of understanding challenges that all young men face, right? Through their particular experience, we tell a universal story about the changing positions of boys and girls with respect to academic achievement. That's the approach. Uh, and I don't, again, this is a uh, sort of a, uh, this is forecasting what I'm gonna do. Uh, I hope this will work out. Um, I think it will, uh, because it worked out very well in the marriage book. Uh, so, you know, as I used to tell my, um, you know, I have boys who uh, play a lot of sports. And, uh, you know, the word there is that if you, if you have a move that works, you just keep going to it, right? Until it stops working, right? And if they stop it, then you get a new move, right? But you keep going, and this move I think is gonna work. So in the, in the marriage book, what I did was I told a story about marriage through the experience of black women, right? And just to take a couple little tidbits to make that concrete, uh, in, 19, in the 1960s, Moynihan uh, in his report, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action, again, y'all know this, he said that there are 25% of black children who are born to unwed parents. And this is a sign of the extent to which the Negro family has become a tangle of pathology, right? And that was the crisis, right? So that's, what do you, how many, what, what's the percentage of white children born now to unmarried parents? Anyone, what do you think? 35? 35? 35, 10, okay, what else? Any other ideas? What do I, what's the percentage of white children born to unmarried parents now? This is where we try to get the class to participate. I was giving them back of the room. White children, so, it's, so among, among whites, it's higher than 25. There's no way you can slice the data that suggests it's lower than 25, right? More than one in four white children are born to unmarried parents. Uh, and the numbers get higher as we slice the data differently. So for example, if you look at, young white women, ages 20 to 24, right? So these are women who are in the prime age of what was, what historically has been the prime age of childbearing. Young white women in their early 20s, 60% of their children, of their firstborn children, are born when they're not married. I know you should not believe that, but that's true, right? <laughs> 60%, and, I, and I'll give you, this is a, give a, you know, a little try to publicize somebody else's book. Uh, this is a, <laughs> Find a sociologist at the, at the University of uh, Texas, Mark Rignaris, who some of you might know, who, who um, is a sociologist, does that name sound, who studies uh, uh, fertility patterns, and this is his, what he found, right, is that 60% of first births to young white women are to unmarried parents, right? Now, for African Americans, the number's even higher, right? But what this suggests is that, you know, the thing that we thought was confined to African Americans, well, you know, it's sort of, it's spread, right? How wise we would have been actually to try to think about the universal influences on out of wedlock childbearing in 1970, say, rather than imagine that it would be confined to African-Americans uh, and sort of suppose that the rate for whites would remain at 5%, which is what it was then, right? So for whites, it was, it's gone from like three, four, five percent up to 30 percent. And if you look at young women, it's even higher, right? So there's this relation, this should be, I mean, this is obvious when you think about it, right? That what happens to the most vulnerable members of a society is related to what happens to other members of a society, right? Because we're, we're all 
sort of affected ultimately by the same economic, social, cultural changes. Right? So we see that with low-income childbearing. We also see it with the work-family issues. Right? Work-family issues were a big issue, our big issue now. And of course, if we looked at black women in the 1960s, we see that black women had the same rates of workforce participation then that white women do now. Right? About 30 years ahead was the, I mean, that's kind of the gap. Right? Black women were doing in 1970 what white women were doing in 2000, which is having children and working outside the home. Right? So now we have a majority of women who have young children working outside the home. For black women, though not white women, that was true in 1970. Right? So there's this link, and I'm building on that link uh, in the boys' book. So I want to understand both why we have such an extreme failure rate among black boys, but also try to understand what the universal uh, causes or underpinnings are of that high failure rate. And what I expect to find is that many of the same influences, pressures, which lead black boys to perform less well than their sisters, also lead children of other, boys of other races to increasingly perform less well than their sisters. Right, so that's the approach. Um, okay, so third um, thing, and I'm not going to go into it because I want to get discussion here. Uh, so the third feature, so first feature of this, of this project is top-down, bottom-up. Statistics, data, theory on one hand, interviews, personal stories, people's actual lives on the other. Second feature is a particular story that becomes a lens through which to bring into focus a universal story. Strong articulation of that focus is that we cannot understand what's happening with boys in American society unless we understand what's happening with black boys. That's the strong story. And this is true, this is just analytically, this is true, but this is also a good political, pragmatically useful approach for people to understand. That if we want to understand what's happening with boys, you can't write a book where you talk about the trouble with boys and you know, black boys are three paragraphs in chapter seven where you say, boy, the problem's even greater there, right? Yeah, you just can't do that. And you also, conversely, you can't understand what's happening with black boys if you write a story or an analysis of black boys where all the data concerns African-Americans. And you don't actually say, well, how does this data fit with research about boys in general, right? You have to connect the two. And, and what's puzzling again is that those two are rarely connected, um, partly because there's a lot. I realize this with the marriage book as well, is that you know, there's a huge literature on race and marriage, there's a huge literature on marriage, and actually combining those takes a lot of time. Um, a lot of time, this is what I, I remember a colleague of mine years ago at a, at a talk, at a law school talk, someone asked him, they said, well, why didn't you pursue this question? And he scratched his head, he said, well, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and, and it was, it was a lot of work, right? And we only have so much time, but uh, you know, this is worth a lot of work, right? It's, it's worth a lot of work because this really is one of the most uh, significant uh, achievement gaps in our society. So uh, the third feature of the new book, which I also took in the marriage book, is that I also want to combine uh, an approach that looks at constraints, uh, structures, impediments, with one that looks at choices and individual decision making. 
All right, so this is the old structure agency divide, right? This is personal choice on one hand versus social structure on the other. Um, you can think of it as a psychologist against a sociologist, right? Um, individual decision making as an analytical lens and how individuals make decisions versus societal structures, economics, uh, social constraints, all those structures on the other. Uh, and in the marriage book, uh, I combine these two in a way that, again, exceeded my wildest expectations. Uh, one place where this issue came up was with respect to interracial marriage. Uh, so in the marriage book, one of the sort of puzzles that I confronted is that although black women, college-educated black women, have fewer black, have fewer same-race peers than any other group of women in the, na in the world, really, any other group of women in the nation, black women are also the least likely of any group to marry across racial lines. Right? And this, again, this, is, I don't, this probably is not surprising to people. Black women are the least likely of any group to marry across racial lines. Uh, black men outmarry two to three times as frequently as black women. Uh, Latinos, Asians outmarry two to three times or more as frequently as black women. Uh, most surprising even is that black women have become no more likely to intermarry than whites. And that's really surprising because typically smaller groups intermarry more. Right, for the obvious reasons. If you're a numerical minority, you will intermarry more than a numerical majority. But African-American women actually intermarry no more frequently than white men or white women. Extraordinarily low intermarriage rate. And then the question is, well, why is that? Um, and the conventional answer, uh, certainly among sociologists, is that black women don't intermarry because they can't. Right, and that's what the data show, actually. I mean, they have lots of evidence that people have marshaled to show that black women face unusually high impediments in the marriage market, and this is a sign of the racial hierarchy of the society and the fact that higher status men have no incentive to marry lower status black women, or you know, black women who by virtue of race are lower status. Uh, so there's a story there about constraints. And there's actually not much literature, if any literature, about the agency of black women. It's as though black women are uh, limited in their possibilities, but that they're not exercising choices. So when I went out using my bottom-up approach and talked to people, I found that just wasn't the case, right? Part of the reason that black women don't intermarry is because they don't want to, right? And then there's a complicated story about why they don't want to, right? Complicated story. There were lots of pieces, but a big part of it is that they don't want to. And that wasn't something you saw in the conclusions that researchers drew from, the, from their data. But then once I had those stories and I went back and I looked at the evidence, I could see it. So I looked at the statistical evidence differently once I was armed with these personal stories because now I had a different narrative in my own mind and I could see possibilities before where previously I'd only, I could see possibilities where previously I'd only seen constraint. So, that's in the marriage book. In the race book, we have to be attentive as well to the interaction of structure and agency, right? So the black boys face unique impediments. Uh, my intuition is yes. This is my starting hypothesis, I would say, is that black boys do face unique impediments uh, in schools. Uh, but they also make decisions in response to uh, the options that they encounter, right? So if we want to understand the processes by which 
boys do less well than their sisters, we need to understand both the impediments and their own decision-making processes. All right, so my approach again is go out, look at the data, take the data out to the world, talk to the kids, talk to the parents, talk to the teachers, to the principals, see what their stories are, and then try to mesh the two together. So that's the story. Okay, so where am I starting? That's all about my approach. Three features of the approach. Uh, one is top down, bottom up. Second is particular and universal. Third is uh, structure and agency, collapsing these usual divides. So my initial hypothesis, and, and this will be uh, what I'll be thinking about over the next many months as I delve farther into this, my initial hypothesis is that uh, there is a way in which school culture in the last decade or so in particular has become more incompatible with the ways of being that are common to boys. And again, this is, I might disavow this in a year, but this is my starting hypothesis. It's school culture has become more incompatible with boys' ways of being in the last decade or so than it was earlier. And that incompatibility between boys' ways of being in school culture shapes boys' behavior. It means boys are going to fare less well, but it also means that teachers, administrators, are going to respond differently to boys than they would to girls. And let me give you a few examples of how this is so. And these are examples. This is a book that, again, I can't help um, but be uh, personal. Uh, and this book will probably end up being a little more personal than, my, than the marriage book, because, you know, the marriage book is, this is, is marriage for white people. Um, as I was writing this, my editor asked me, she said, are you going to put in some personal stories and, you know, talk about marriage? First, I said, well, my wife might read this. I can't, <laughs> I can't talk about that, right? Um, so I just kept that academic and other people's stories are in the book, right? Not my story. Other people's stories are in the book. With the boys' book, though, I, I think I will include my own boys' stories because by the time I let them read it, they'll be able to handle it. Right? But Abby, well, Abby, Abby is my oldest son. And he actually is my harshest critic. He, he's the one who, I think he's excited about this book, but the marriage book he wasn't very excited about. As I told him I was working on it, and, you know, he was asking, why is daddy away? He said, well, daddy's working on this book. And he read 10 pages one day, and he had marked in the margins, boring, you know, <laughs> and it was too long, confusing. And then I asked him, I said, so I guess you didn't really like that. And then he said, well, dad, why do you have to write about something lame like marriage? And you know, so I tried to answer that question. Um, but this book, I think he, he's more on board with. Um, but let me give you a couple of, uh, so Ebby is my oldest son. He's in seventh grade. Uh, at his, when he was in kindergarten, and this is when I first, maybe really just brought this home to me, right? So this is, again, you look at data, you see evidence, you read the words, but personal experiences can sometimes bring something home to someone. Uh, we go to his parent-teacher conference. This is our first child, his, our first parent-teacher conference with a kindergarten teacher in life. We had, we had turned him over to this institution. Uh, on the first day, we waited outside the door as they went in, and they actually have a, a covering across the windows so you can't look in because they know, <laughs> they know parents want to look into the kindergarten classroom. And I can still remember the pit in my stomach and I almost feel sick and it's just, you know, it's not the kids who are crying, right? It's the parents who are crying, right? 
So we go into the first conference with his teacher, and we're excited because, of course, we think our son is pretty, pretty cool little guy. And uh, she sits down, and we're excited there, and she opens the file, and then she begins to tell us in excruciating detail. You see how his D is a little bit bigger than his E here? <laughs> and the letters slant when he writes. And he went outside the line on his last name. And the lowercase is the same size as the capital. And we went, really, we went on and on. We spent 40 minutes talking about our son's inability to write his name in a really nice way, right? <laughs> the letters were crooked. They were different sizes. It uh, looked like he, maybe he started over on a few of them. Uh, and uh, that, that was the substance of the conference. From the teacher's perspective, writing his name on a sheet of paper, having the letters fit between the lines was what was required in kindergarten. And we wanted her to comment on his questions and his inquiring mind and his curiosity and, you know, didn't come up in the discussion, right? Didn't come up. Uh, and this is at what is, you know, one of the best elementary schools judging by API scores in the Bay Area. Um, a better elementary school than the Palo Alto schools, in fact, judging by the API scores. Um, and as we got to know the teacher better, of course, we were able to talk to her. And I think one time I sort of raised this issue. And then I, she was transformed from villain to victim because she said, you know, I really hate this. I have to do things in kindergarten now that I used to didn't have to do till second grade, right? In her view, over the last 15 years, what happened at the end of, or what happened at the beginning of second grade was now part of the end of kindergarten, right? Because the school wanted those test scores up. That's why, that's how the principal got acclaim and, and esteem in the eyes of her colleagues. That's why people stood in line overnight, uh, which they did. They stood in line overnight. And the principal would, would, would promote this by saying, if a line forms the day before registration for kindergarten is available, we'll have hot cocoa there. And the parents hear that, and, you know, they're out there, right? And the then the principal is there with the news cameras. Yes, we have these lines forming. And <laughs> this is because we deliver such a quality educational product. But inside, the teachers are feeling that we're pushing stuff down to ever lower levels and we're requiring children to do things that they weren't required to do years ago until second grade, right? And, and this matters for boys and girls because as this same son or any of my sons will tell you, girls seem to have better handwriting than boys, <laughs> right? And what the researchers will say is that girls find motor skills develop earlier than boys' motor skills develop. So girls can make lovely cursive writing and they, <laughs> it almost looks like a script when they're in second grade and the boys can't, right? And maybe the boys will learn to do that later, but when teachers spend a lot of time on that in kindergarten and first grade, and the boys know when they're not doing the right thing, um, that might have an effect on a child's orientation to school, right? Might have an effect on a child's orientation to school. So that was the earliest example uh, of how school practices, ironically, our, our desire to promote high achievement can actually backfire for some children, right? And it might be boys generally, but then black boys in particular, 
because often they're at the schools where we feel they need the most drilling, rigorous emphasis on these road skills early on. You got to get them working, you know, military precision, even in kindergarten. Right? It might work for some, but then it might not work for others. So flash, for, flash forward uh, five years, son's graduation from kindergarten, or graduation from elementary school, same son. Uh, he's done well. Um, you know, we're happy he's graduated and, and all the parents are like, oh, their kids are growing up. And we're sitting outside at the kindergarten award ceremony, graduation ceremony. And everyone's excited. Uh, and one of the things they do at this very high achieving school is they give awards to uh, students in the graduating class. And they had three awards for every class, every fifth grade class. There were several fifth grade classes in this large school. Uh, so they start to give the awards and the children who receive the awards come up and the awards are for math, for literature, for you know, all around being a good person, a good student. Uh, and as the children file to the front, this is on the playground and they start to line up in the front, it becomes apparent very soon that every award recipient is a girl. Literally every single one. And this goes on and on, and then eventually there is one boy, a child of a friend of ours who received an award, which wasn't one of the primary academic awards, it was one of the good kid awards, right? <laughs> he receives the award, and later I overhear my son saying something uh, about this kid, which ended with, oh yeah, he's just like the girls, um, or something to that effect, right? That this is not a kid who plays football at recess and does all that stuff. This is a kid who hangs out more with the girls at recess and does the things that the girls do at recess. Uh, and, you know, probably was a little more compliant than my son thought was cool to be in elementary school. So, uh, again, uh, you wonder, this is at a, at a high achieving school, uh, predominantly white school, there are, no, there are very few black children in the school, uh, but we see these disparities very early on. Right? We see them at kindergarten in terms of the girls' ability to write, we see them in fifth grade in terms of who receives the awards. And now the son is in seventh grade and we even see it now where we just hear as you as you as a parent, you realize that sometimes the best way for you to learn things is to just be quiet in the car. And so one day I'm in the car and a bunch of boys were riding and we had been talking about the math uh, project that they did where they had to make a big poster and they had to talk about some mathematical concepts and they make a big poster and it turns out that the boys, at least, thought that the girls unfairly got the highest grades. And I just ventured, well, why was that? And they said, well, because their handwriting was nice. <laughs> and it turns out the teacher did give weight for handwriting <laughs> in math class. Uh, and that that could take your grade from an A to a B plus, right? And some of the boys just didn't, they just didn't have that uh, skill. So, um, so these are some of the uh, examples that are kind of in the back of my mind, right, that inform my thinking about it. Uh, and the way I think this plays out in, in schools, again, this is just my initial hypothesis. Um, I think there are these differences in achievement between boys, um, just as there are differences across, between boys and girls, just as there are differences in achievement across racial groups, right? And teachers are aware of these differences. Right? They are aware of these differences. So teachers are aware 
of the NAEP scores, in essence, for Asian Americans versus whites versus African Americans. They know what those scores are, and they know that the Asian Americans are at the top, they know that the whites are in the middle, and the African Americans and the Latinos are at the bottom, and at the very bottom are the black boys, and in some cases, Latino boys. And teachers are aware of this, and when a child walks in the door, they respond to that child based in part on which category they fit into. And uh, again, this is, um, you know, this is an intuition uh, that teachers see, for example, uh, when they see a black boy come in the room, they don't assume that if the black boy is, uh, has his head down on the desk in class, they don't assume he's bored. They don't assume he's actually really smart and he wants to achieve. They draw a different set of conclusions about him, uh, make a different set of inferences, uh, and then treat the child in a way that makes it more likely that the child will be socialized into low achievement. Uh, and that's my start. And you all can tell me that's just garbage and that's wrong, right? And tell me where to go to try to verify or, or refute this. But that's my intuition. I mean, that's my worry, in fact. Because the thing to remember about the gender gap is that it's not a gap among the poor. It's not that poor black boys you know, end up in jail and poor black girls graduate from high school. It's that middle class black boys don't graduate from college and middle class black girls get PhDs. That's the divide. Okay, so we want to stop there and have discussion. Yes. Oh, shoot. I didn't even turn on my interview. We have about 15 minutes, and I'll try to, you answer the question. How do I? I'll try to facilitate. I saw this hand first. How do I shut this off? My name is Tiffany Pikes. I work for the Foundation. My interest in coming here today was to hopefully find, hear some solutions to why black boys fail to incorporate into our work because of a program that focuses on college access for African American males. Unfortunately, you're not there yet. Nope. But hopefully you will have a section in your book that actually talks about the so what. Yep, yep, um, yep. Solutions, strategies, or can just turn it off. Okay. Yep. Um, systems, structures to remedy the problem as opposed to just highlighting the long list of data yep. that yep. there are lots of yep. other organizations yep. like yep. the SHOT Foundation, the SHOT yep. Report about, yep. you know, black yep. performance. Yep. 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 Well, let me tell you, I'll tell you, yes, no, you're right. This is, um, so again, this is, uh, I mean, the, the, my interest here is, is, I mean, it's ultimately practical, but it starts off as intellectual. And I think the problem is actually a hard problem uh, because the, the gap is substantial, it's two to one. Every year it's two to one, uh, it's a hard problem. Uh, I think that the issue of solutions is, of course, where we want to end up, but I think most of the, Many, maybe I'll say most, most of the reports out there that purport to offer solutions don't. Most of them don't, don't offer actual solutions um, because they, in fact, uh, overlook how difficult the problem is, right? I heard a, a, a story, this is, was two academics, right, um, who've written a lot about black boys and 
on a radio show, they said, oh, you know, yes, you know, the black boys are not doing well, but we know what works with black boys. And, you know, we can solve this problem if we just want to, because we are aware of all, this, all the, the problems and we know what the solutions are. Uh, and in fact, the solutions are easy to implement. And that's just wrong. Um, I don't think that's the case. I don't think the solutions are easy to implement. Uh, and if you think they're easy to implement, then the story should be, why aren't we implementing them? Right, if they're that easy to implement. So uh, I want to spend a lot of time and just focus on the problem, right? And to try to understand, try to dissect that problem. This is a, a way of saying, again, with marriage, uh, you know, the marriage book, 80% of it is about why have marriage rates declined so much among African-Americans? Because if we don't get a handle on that, we can't hope to have any sort of solution to that. Uh, so uh, the bulk of my time is going to be spent on analyzing the problem, and then the solutions will come after that, right? But right now I'm kind of segregating those two because the tendency that, that, that I see a lot, which is, is unfortunate, is that people want to jump to a solution, and in doing so they uh, actually underestimate the difficulty of the problem. That's a great question. These, these, these. I'm sorry. But the, right. Right. Well, the, the, I guess the, um, yeah, so I start, I mean, I want to start, I mean, this is a way of answering that question as well, right? Is that I want to try to understand why boys and girls in the same family often reach such divergent outcomes, right? So that's, uh, so that's the starting point for the whole project, right? And the answer to why they reach such divergent outcomes has to do somehow, I mean, this is a gender divide, right? And so we see the gender divide among African-Americans, uh, but we see the same gender divide among other groups, right? And so the story is a story about the extent to which there's sort of continuity between African-Americans and other groups, and then the extent to which there's distinctiveness. Right, and so there's some of the focus is on, well, what happens within African American families, or what is it about African Americans generally? Like, why are African Americans at the at the bottom part of the achievement hierarchy? But then there's a big part of the story which is just, well, no, why boys in particular? Uh, so that's the, I mean, that's the the framing, um, and it's not, uh, and, and I think there, I mean, I guess I would say that. I think that gender is a divide. There are, there are experiences that all boys share. And I think the experiences that all boys share are probably more important than we'd like to think uh, relative to the experience that all African Americans share, that people share within a group, right? So this is, there's an assumption that there's a commonality there among boys when they enter classrooms. 
and we haven't um, paid particular attention to that common. I mean, that's really something that we haven't paid particular attention to that commonality. You know, if you want to understand what happens to, you know, black boys in Oakland, you know, maybe you should look at white boys in San Carlos or Atherton and right and then or Menlo Park. And and there's and there's and there's some value to be added by looking at that comparison. And we haven't done it. If, if I have some, if, if I have some good research assistants, I will do that. Yes, <laughs> yes, um, yes. No, again, this is yes. That's, There's a new project for you. Someone here in the middle. Did I see a hand in the middle? Other questions? Yeah, come on. Is the law degree included in that? It is. That, okay. okay that's no, no, I think this, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, that, and, and John Ogbo is a name most of you will probably know. I mean, there are a lot of problems with his research, actually. But, but, but I think it's, it's true that when you look at educational, you look at parents' education level, there's, there's a lot of diversity behind college graduates, right? And so, uh, you know, you know but, but then the, the, the story basically is that it would be that if we want to capture all the sort of educational resources that parents bring to bear, educational level is not enough to look at, right? You would look at not only education, you look at income, you look at wealth, you'd look at other members of their family, you look at all sorts of other indicators that uh, matter. And when you look at all those indicators, the achievement gap could, you have enough variables, it actually disappears, right? So the racial gap in achievement actually can disappear if you have enough other variables in the equation that are associated with race. Right? And that's part of the reason why I say the racial gap in achievement is lamentable, but it's actually not surprising. It's not surprising. But the gender gap, that's surprising. Because by definition, these are kids in the same family. Right? So that's kind of what keeps me here. Yes. Oh, sorry. Um, yes. If, you're, if you are looking at that experience of 
progressing into higher education. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to share an anecdote from several years ago when Martha Cantlin, then mm -hmm. the Chancellor of Foothill Anza, um, brought together the feeder districts, the local feeder districts, the high school and unified districts, into a board meeting so that they could have a discussion at the board level about the extent to which they are achieving providing access, which mm -hmm. was very good, mm -hmm. and the extent to which they're providing success, which mm -hmm. they thought was not so good. Mm -hmm. I think there are some barriers there for a lot of kids, and I think those barriers may be, differ may be differential in those barriers. And I can talk to you about that, okay. more about that some other time, but I, there are other people. Okay, no, that'd be very, again, this is, yeah, I want to enlist all of you in this project, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was hoping not to be controversial here today. This is my wife tells us frequently I can be too controversial. Um, but yeah. So one of the issues is is that I mean you might imagine. Uh, yes. Yeah, so so African Americans, seventy percent of black children are born to unwed parents, right? And, and these are not parents who are living together in a long term stable relationship, right? They're born to unwed parents. Uh, they're raised by their mother. Right. One might imagine that black children, black boys suffer more than black girls do due to the absence of a father. Right. And although men might want to be and often do want to be involved when the parents are not married, the father is typically not very involved with raising the child. That's just the reality of the situation. Right. Marriage. One of the purposes of marriage is to bring fathers together with children. Right? And when the parents are not married, the father's not involved in raising the child, that might especially harm black boys. Um, that's a hypothesis that you hear bandied about a lot. Uh, there are a lot of people who argue about that forcefully, um, but the data actually doesn't support that as much as you might imagine. The data is much more equivocal. Uh, in fact, we don't see strong differences for black children based on whether the parents are together or not. Um, and there's a big question about why that is, uh, but we don't see those strong differences. Um, you might also imagine that, you know, we should expect to see those differences because if the mothers are not with the fathers, uh, there might be some animosity or resentment toward the fathers, which would be played out toward the children. This is another theory that, that I mean, this is uh, Orlando Patterson makes this argument. And, uh, uh, you know, his argument is that the black mothers treat their sons differently because they're acting out uh, a bad relationship with the father. Um, and that this is why black, part of the reason why black boys do uh, less well than black girls. Uh, but again, it's hard to, uh, data's equivocal. So, but, so that's, but that's part of the story, or potentially part of the story. Okay, we have time for one more question. I got a few more. Okay, I'm gonna have to go. I'll be okay. quick. Uh, do two. Okay. okay. I saw your hand first, and then, okay. I thought, okay. Two or three, do three. Because <laughs> three is lucky. Three is lucky. Mm -hmm. 
years and what I saw with my son is that um, he felt that boys were rewarded for being bad boys, mm -hmm. um, particularly black boys. If they were the athletic bad boys, they were the desirable, coolest kids around. So that, that influence came in in middle school. Um, and then in, I think in high school and in college, there's, you know, again, I don't know whether there's any of this, but in the athletic influence in general mm -hmm. uh, comes in, particularly um, kids who are aiming for, believe that they're going to mm -hmm. be pro athletes or whatever. And then, of course, in the, uh, the difference in graduation rates, you know, I have to wonder if some of that is, is schools that change their admission standards because they admit mm. black men mm -hmm. for athletic, athletic reasons as opposed mm -hmm. to really making sure that they can finish. And I, mm -hmm. I suspect that doesn't happen as often for black women. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the, other, uh, the other thing that I wonder if it's had an impact, because I was really worried when it happened, was just when the SAT um, implemented the writing essay mm -hmm. and <laughs> and I was very concerned about that. With, I, I was just with your son, but not with your daughter. My son, I was concerned. I was thinking, well, hopefully they'll, they'll let me type it by the time they, <laughs> by the time he takes it. Of course, it was still handwritten. Right. And and I think that overall, um, supposedly perform, I think about the same as women on that writing exam. I I, I don't know what the it, what the statistics are like for black men, uh, black women. But it's one of those things where the fine, because the fine motor skill difference is to some extent, I think, a lot. Okay. Okay. That's good. Um, it's just a criminal record, uh, as opposed mm -hmm. to incarceration, criminal record, which I was shocked mm -hmm. to also um, how many young black men get criminal mm -hmm. records. Okay. Because of your yeah. time, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask. I'm not going to answer. Then you can answer. Go. Okay. Yep. I know we have a number of young men in the audience. We actually have some high school students. I would love it if one of them would ask a question or make a comment. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay, so we have a, have a point here. Uh, a question. <coughs> Go ahead. Like, no, I don't have high school students. So I was teaching in San Quentin. And uh, the story that we shared is uh, interesting. So we know that like there's a difference. There's not much of any substantial concrete fundamental difference between races, but as it pertains to gender, we're entering something different, so that there are a lot of social constructs, as well as biological differences, and the expectations that come along with that. And the story that kept coming up was that when we're looking at the same family, and then when we look at families in which there's actually multiple males, uh, we were talking about how the older male protects the younger male, and that education has been something that's more possible in, say, a troubled neighborhood for that younger male, because they don't have to worry about that's one thing that came up, but like in um, for the for the thinking about the, the, the intersectionality for gender and race, it's like uh, I don't know something's to be said about just the expectation in and of itself, the distance between being what America says a man's supposed to be, and um, things that may get in the way for a black boy, particularly to be that. Um, would be something to look at, and so athletics is something that comes to mind. Um, that is a domain in which the stereotype about black men would be the opposite <laughs> than in other domains, and so that may seem like something more plausible for a black man to be able to be what he's supposed to be, a supporter of his family, a protector of his people, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, I'm just gonna Okay, okay. okay.
had a comment here, Matt. Oh, question. oh, yes. One of the things that I wonder about, haven't our expectations for girls changed? And doesn't that have an influence mm -hmm. on what's going on in, in the classroom, especially in the higher grades? I mean, it used to be mm -hmm. that girls always did well in the lower grades and then mm -hmm. in, in my generation, mm -hmm. the boys mm -hmm. caught up and, yep. and exceeded. But we've changed our expectations for girls. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's true. I mean, girls now. I mean, it was so the idea of so girls doing better in fourth grade, right? That actually is not new, right? Girls have long done better than boys by some measures, especially in reading in the early years, uh, and they even were at parity in college enrollments. You know, in 1940, say, right before the war, in 1930, right? There were lots of women who entered college. Frequently, they married before they graduated, but they entered college. Uh, but now they're actually exceeding men. Uh, the numbers of, there are more women than men in college, uh, and they're surpassing men in graduate school as well. And in the workforce, right, right. And, and the most, you know, and the starkest example of this, also, I mean, the starkest example is I see with African Americans that even in fields like computer science, where we think that men might predominate, there are more black women who are succeeding in computer science now than there are men, right? And other women are making gains as well. Yep, okay. Thank Last question? So okay. Thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.